Well, it's good to be back uh, here with you this week. It's a clear reminder when you're gone for a couple weeks how thankful you are for your church family, and uh, you were greatly missed in the Pellegra home. Um, we were definitely stir-crazy and experienced cabin fever, and we're tired of looking at each other. Um, but we are thankful for the Lord's grace to keep us well, um, most particularly my wife, and um, thank you for your prayers for her and for her dad as he continues to struggle with just the ramifications and the, the consequences of going through COVID. Um, thankful that he's getting better even day by day, so thank you for your prayers. Also have a, <clears throat> a great report uh, back from our elder retreat yesterday. Uh, we met as elders, and um, just, again, very thankful for these men <clears throat> and the ways that uh, we can just get together each year and uh, pray together. Uh, we pray over you as a church, uh, by name, as families. Um, we uh, start our time in God's Word and, and just reflect upon uh, God directing us as a church, and um, I think one of the things that, that I always enjoy about our elder retreat is, is we, we kind of go through a, a series of, of, of statements of the, the praises and the pitfalls and the problems of 2021 and looking into 2022. And really what we're trying to do as elders is <clears throat> uh, look and see what God has done. And I just love that part of it because we're giving God praise for um, as leaders, seeing how he has worked in our church. And I, I won't go into the specifics, um, but, but I will say that the theme coming out of that section of our elder retreat was just how amazing a community of faith that we have here at our church. Just a, a sweet fellowship of family, love, and care for each other. And oftentimes you see that when your loved ones go through tragedy and difficulty. And I know uh, Brother Adam in particular was able to share uh, just his love for you and the ways that you have cared for him and his family. And uh, that, had, that did not occur by prodding from this pulpit. That happened naturally, as you would hope love between a body of believers would happen. And so I'm very thankful uh, for you and very thankful for the community that we have today in our church. Uh, community love and patience and bearing with one another, suffering well together. As a matter of fact, I want to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul is dealing with uh, division in the church, and he says these words to the Corinthian church. He says, But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may, be the, may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. And uh, man, what a, what a testimony, uh, what a challenging passage, but I, I think it's a testimony of our church. In, in this last year. And so I'm just very thankful to see that and report it and to remind you of it um, because it, it is actually the theme of our passage today in Nehemiah. Now, Brother Terry read Nehemiah chapter 6, and that was purposeful, but I'm going to be preaching from Nehemiah chapter 3. 
And the reason why he read Nehemiah chapter 6 is because I wanted you to see the end goal. Because in Nehemiah chapter 3, all the way through the end of chapter 5 and into 6, we see the, the building of the walls of Jerusalem. We see this happening. And chapter 3 is one of those interesting chapters. It's Chapter 3 of Nehemiah is like reading through the book of Leviticus. If you don't know what you're going into, you're going to get lost in the weeds. Okay? It's not the chapter of the Bible that you send a new believer to to start reading about the glories of, of, of God and all he does. Because they're going to get lost in a repetitious, systematic listing and, and statements of the building process of the walls of Jerusalem. And now we acknowledge, as Brother, Jerry shared, or, uh, Brother Terry shared, that this is the inerrant Word of God. Every bit of the Word of God is important and sufficient for us. And this chapter in Nehemiah chapter 3 has a lot of value, but we need to look at it from 30,000 feet. Okay? We need to see from a bird's eye view how important this is. And one of the ways we do that is by knowing what Brother Terry read that in the end, the wall is complete. The work is finished. And that's necessary because as Nehemiah said in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 20, this is what I preached on the last time I was here, in the midst of op- op- opposition, Nehemiah tells his, uh, his opponents, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. That's the promise, that's the confidence that Nehemiah had in God that their hand would prosper in rebuilding the walls. So, we are now in the third phase of this study of Ezra-Nehemiah. We know that the Jews have returned in three phases, the third phase being with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is now there leading the people. He has left Uh, Susa, the capital of Persia, he has now been given the resources that he has needed to rebuild the walls. He has surveyed the problems of the walls as we looked at the last time I preached. He, He now understands the problem and he as a leader has gone back to to fix these problems by the grace and the power of God. Remember that their desire as the people were to rebuild these walls, not just so that the walls will look pretty. Not just so that uh, they could pat themselves on the back and say, look what great accomplishments we've done for the work of God. Now remember that the purpose of rebuilding the wall was so that the city of Jerusalem would be secure and that the name of God would be honored and glorified among the nations. A a city that's in ruins is not going to promote a God who does great things. So in, in, in finishing these walls, Nehemiah is setting out to accomplish a work of worshiping and honoring Yahweh. And the people were totally on board with this. And as we see in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15 and 16, the community of faith come together And in 52 days, they rebuild 40 sections of the wall of Jerusalem to its completion. That's amazing. It's a miracle. 
And what I want us to look at today, and I think the theme that is trying to be communicated in this, what I and myself and, and, and maybe even Brandon Van Hooser might see every day on a construction site, is literally a scope of work and a, and a, and a description of what has happened on a construction project. But again, from 30,000 feet, it's the glorious work of God that has gone and passed through the faithful hands of the community of his people. That's why I've entitled this passage, or this sermon today, The Community That Works. Because when the people of God come together, and we work to accomplish the goals and the dreams that God has set before us, then he works through us to do great and amazing things. But there's a couple things that we see from this passage that help us understand how we as a church, how we as a community, now and in the future, might work together to accomplish God's purposes as the people in Nehemiah chapter 3 did. So first thing I want to talk to you about today, a couple observations from this passage, again, is... Uh, first of the, the, the idea of the role of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Notice back in, in chapter 2, verse 20, Nehemiah says that the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and rebuild. There you have in that one statement the great and beautiful and mysterious tension between the fact that God is sovereign over all things, and yet He requires us and calls us to obedience and faithfulness so that He might carry out His work in the world. We acknowledge the total mystery and beauty of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in all of Scripture. We acknowledge that God, the Lord of all creation, sits in heaven. He sits on His throne, that He is king forever, that He is ruling the nations. The truth of God's absolute power carries forth throughout all of Scripture, showing us His creation, both physically and spiritually, from nothing into something. God demonstrates His power so that it is undeniable that our God rules and reigns over all. He is sovereign. And we find comfort in this truth. We, kind of, we find comfort in this truth when our families are sick and, and, and ailing, when they are uh, lost and, and failing, that there is a constant reminder that God is our strength and our hope and our refuge and our strong tower, that we can trust in Him as our King and our Lord. And that everything that happens in this world is happening according to His sovereign purposes and will, even when we in our finite minds cannot understand it. I don't understand why COVID exists in this world today. Some of us may have our political opinions about that. But we know that that was no surprise to God. We understand and know that God has allowed these things to happen. That He has allowed even the suffering and the pain in this world. And that in His goodness and in His purposes, He is working out those things for His glory. Even if we can't understand it. And so we trust in this beauty of God's sovereignty. 
And yet Nehemiah declaring that God would prosper their hands is acknowledging that their hands would be active. That they would be at work. Doing what God had commanded them to do. Therefore the tension between God's responsibility or sovereignty and man's responsibility. Nehemiah is not idly sitting back thinking that bricks would fall from heaven with finely placed mortar in between and the walls would build themselves. God has called the people to go back and to do these things for His glory and He expects them to act in faithfulness according to the covenant that He had made with them. And they were faithful to go back and to do these things no matter the consequences, no matter the sacrifice. And so therefore they were responsible to respond trusting in the great sovereignty of God to, to accomplish those things through them. So we too as a church preach the beautiful God, sovereignty of, and power of God throughout all things and yet call you and, and, and I call myself to action so that whatever God has called us to accomplish in the world, He calls us to do that with faithfulness. And we have to be careful of the dangers of leaning too far in one direction. Leaning too far in the direction of God's sovereignty oftentimes leads us to fatalism. To think that, that because God rules and reigns and ordains all things that we could just sit back with our legs propped up and our hands crossed and say God's going to take care of it. He doesn't need me. Well, that's true, brother and sister. He doesn't need you, but he has, called, he has called you. He has called you to act. Really, remember Acts chapter 17, God needs nothing. But he chooses to use you to do and accomplish his purposes. And so we can't fatalistically sit back and just say God is, is, is going to accomplish what he needs to accomplish without me. Instead, we move forward in obedience Trusting that he's going to accomplish those things through us. And on the other end of the spectrum, when we depend too much on man's responsibility, then we oftentimes get puffed up and we find ourselves flexing in the mirror of our great strengths of what we've done for God. Thinking that it's in our strength and that it's in our accomplishments and, and our, our pride grows and our arrogance swells. And, and, and then we forget the fact that God is the one that has called us out of darkness into marvelous light. That God is the one that has fueled and powered and motivated us to even accomplish those things. Without God's sovereignty, without God's power, we would have never been faithful to begin with. Remember Jesus told his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So there's a tension. But as God's community of faith, we can and will accomplish His purposes when we are faithful to trust in who He is and what He has called us to do. Nehemiah and these faithful Jews were just an example, one example in God's Word of these truths. There's a couple things, other things that we might observe. Not only were they dealing with the tension of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, but they display 
a beautiful unity in their work. A beautiful unity in their work. I appreciate uh, Brother Tim and, and Brother Stewart both uh, preaching uh, in, in, in my absence. Brother Tim was scheduled to preach that week and by God's providence. He allowed that to happen. Stewart was just uh, providentially faithful to have prepared something uh, in case I wasn't well. And yet both of those things, in my opinion, had this theme going on in Philippians chapter 1 and in introduction to Titus uh, of this, this theme of, of community whereby we see the church so uh, close and, and, and unified together that they are making this lasting impact. Paul and his relationship with the Philippians the support that they had. Matter of fact, in Philippians chapter 1, Tim preached on verses 3 through 5. Paul thanking God in their remembrance of them, always in his prayers, with the joy in his heart. Why? Because of the partnership in the gospel. They were a community of faith that were working together, unified in one purpose to accomplish the goal, not of Timothy, not of Titus, not of Paul, not their goals, the goal of Jesus, the gospel ministry. The proclamation of the good news. We saw the same thing in, in, in Paul's uh, words to Titus and, and his encouragement and the, the way in which he uh, discipled this young man and sent Titus out to, to go and do again the same thing. Proclaim the gospel, start churches, lead people and pointing people back to Jesus. One goal, a unified mission. Well, in Nehemiah, again, looking from 30,000 feet, you see a consistent and repetitive truth about the unity of these people. Now, in a, in a, just in a, in a, a Bible study type um, instruction for you for just a moment. When you get to passages like this, you need to look for rhythm. You need to look for repetitive words and things that are going to be coming out to show you what this chapter is all about. Otherwise, you're going to get lost in Old Testament names that you're not going to spend the time researching every single one. There's over 40 in this passage. But instead, you'll notice words like this. That the word repaired is mentioned 34 times. Over and over again, these individuals were set to the task of repairing the walls. 35 times in one chapter, that word repaired is used. Over 15 times, the phrase next to is used in relationship to people working alongside each other on sections of the wall. These individuals were uh, organized by Nehemiah to go and take this section of the wall. And, and, and you'll see in a minute, I, I have a, a video that I, I hope will, will, will play, and you'll see that these sections are, are divided up by these gates. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to show you and I hope it works. Um, You'll see these different numbers up here. This is the, the very northern half, 
section and, and you'll see that, that there's towers that, uh, that, that basically separate the walls. So you have tower and tower and tower and walls in between. And, and in those towers, many times are gates. And there's ten gates that had to be rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. Ten different gates that are mentioned in this passage. And how did Nehemiah do it? He went counterclockwise from the very top by the the temple, counterclockwise around the city from the sheep gate to the sheep gate. And you'll see those listed. And and he took a group of people and he says, you're going to work on this section of the wall and you're going to work on this section. And that's what chapter 3 is. It's literally a description of the people that worked on their sections accompanying all of this city wall structure. And they were repairing it, repairing it, repairing it. And -and so-and-so was next to so-and-so. And they were setting their bars and they were setting the doors and they were setting the bolts. And the reason that we're getting this and we're seeing this Uh, over and over again uh, described to us is to show us a common unity of purpose, what they had set out to do. This one common goal. And the fact that they were able to complete this task in under two months is a miracle in itself and it shows how God was accomplishing His purposes through them. And so as the church, we stand then to consider how might we learn from this aspect of unity. That we as a church are called to work together. Being unified in one purpose. Fighting to keep the gospel message in the forefront of our mission. This is what God has called us to. They were called to rebuild physical walls. We are called to tear down walls and go out into the community and in the world and proclaim a message that saves and changes the culture. And so that's what we are called to do then, to be united as a people of God and to accomplish the task before us. But if we're honest with ourselves, unity in the church as a whole is in great jeopardy. Because what has happened in the last few years in particular of emphasis is that we are allowing a diversity of ideas and beliefs to wedge themselves in the church, thus splintering the church as a whole. Disagreements among brothers and sisters in Christ are actually leading to dysfunction. So that no longer is the church actually accomplishing the mission that it's set to do. Instead, it's more focused on proving your point versus this point. Now, I will be the first to tell you that there are definitely theological stands that we take as a church to guard and protect the gospel from contamination, from distortion and corruption. But there are oftentimes secondary disagreements that we allow into the church that disunify us. And they keep us from doing what God has called us to do. 
we might have in this situation in Nehemiah an example where instead of these uh, workers gathering together, focusing on their section, we might see a a, a group of people looking over to the next section and critiquing the, the work of those people Focusing on, well, why are they doing that that way? There's a a better efficient way to build that wall. There's a better thing that they could be doing. Or let me give my opinion about this situation. Instead of focusing on the task that they've been given and the section that they've been given to accomplish for God's glory. And so church, my challenge to us this afternoon and, and evening and, and, and to consider is, is that God has called us as, bodies, as, as His body uh, of believers because of His sacrificial death upon the cross, He has supernaturally wed us together in this mystical union. There is absolutely nothing that exists on the planet that is stronger and more supernaturally empowered than the body of Christ that has been brought together under His death and resurrection. There's nothing that exists. There's nothing that is lasting as that. The marriage bond is not eternal like the body of Christ is eternal. We will forever be together in heaven. And we have been brought together as total strangers united in Christ. Therefore, we are called to be united and not divided. Focused on the mission that He has called us. I want you to consider for a second. I want you to consider for a second just how powerful the distractions of, of our world and our day and time are. If I asked right now for a show of hands of who is vaccinated in this room and who is not, the results of that showing could immediately cause your mind to think differently about the person sitting next to you. Now, is that a distraction to what God has called the church to do? I think so. I think, it's, I think that's a, a big distraction that causes dysfunction. Because your opinion about a certain health issue may be different than mine. And those are the type of things. Just, just a fraction of an example of the things that I see right now as causing such a division in the church that we have lost sight of spreading the gospel across the nations. And we have to be unified. We have to put aside our differences. We have to put aside our differing opinions. And be reminded that we have been supernaturally wed together so that we might honor Christ, glorify His name, stand firm upon truth. He's not asking us to... Dis, to, to accept a, a, a dissolution or, or, or a, a distortion of the gospel, but He is calling us to stand firm upon what He has passed down from generation to generation and to take that and herald it across the globe in unity. 
And I think the workers here building these walls were showing us that unity. Because in that unity, we'll also see diversity. We also see diversity. As you go through this chapter, you're going to notice a a culmination of different types of people. And to make it as simple as possible, I want to uh, bring together for you three categories of people that you will see all working together, unified, and yet from different spectrums of society. You can see in chapter 3, verse 1, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanel. The same chapter, chapter 3, shows us not only is the high priest working, not only are the Levites working in chapter 17, not only are the temple servants working in verse 26, but we got to be reminded that these are the religious leaders doing the work. They're not just dictating the work. They're not just uh, facilitating or administrating the work. They are literally brick and mortar building the walls with their hands. You got to be encouraged by that. You got to be encouraged to see the religious leaders being the one doing the heavy lifting, laboring alongside their brothers and sisters, building the sections that had been assigned to them. You see civic leaders. Multiple times throughout these passages, you see the ruler of this district of Jerusalem and the ruler of this district. These are civic leaders. Mayors, as you might consider them, or governors of little areas and districts, you might consider them, who also are busy at work with the responsibility given before them Not sitting high on their horse with their authority, passing it on to the common people. No, they also, with the religious leaders, are busy at work. Except, except for verse 5, the Tekoites. These people from a neighboring village outside of Jerusalem were busy repairing. But we do see, according to Ezra the scribe, that their nobles, verse 5, the, the nobles of the Tekites, or Tekoa is the, the area that they were from, those nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Right? There's always a bad apple in the bunch, right? There's always going to be the people that snub their nose and, and consider themselves too worthy to, to, to pick up a shovel or, or to clean a toilet or, or to lift speakers up on a speaker stand. But the, the point is, is that this was, the, this was the minority, not the majority. The majority shows us this diversity in leadership. Matter of fact, I'm encouraged by this section of people that, uh, the, from, from Tekoa because not only do we see in verse 5 were they busy repairing, but if you go down to verse 27, you see that this people who didn't have a, a, the decency of leadership to, to participate in verse 27, these people actually took care of two sections of the wall. But you got to respect that work. 
So you've got religious leaders, you've got civic leaders, and you just have the common people. Business leaders are mentioned, like goldsmiths and perfumers and merchants. They're working alongside just common people, unified together, yet from different walks of life, trying to accomplish what is necessary that has been set before them. Nehemiah had assigned these sections, and they, working alongside very different people than them, from different social classes and different responsibilities in the community, saying, hey, let's, let's all get our hands dirty together so that we might do the work of the Lord. Man, this is the message that the church needs to hear. And let me just stop and tell you again, as a pastor and elder of this church, I am so extremely thankful to know that you guys are willing to get your hands dirty as a church. That you're willing to do the things that are necessary, and you've been willing to do that from this inception of redemption. You you acknowledge the fact that your elders work part-time and full-time jobs, and and so you are willing to say, oh, we'll just let them pay for it or take care of it because we pay their salaries. No, instead you were saying, hey, we we acknowledge that they have families and they have responsibilities in another employment, and and so we're going to take uh, some of the load off, and we're going to help them, and we're going to serve alongside them. And, And so I commend you in your faithfulness to that for these seven, almost eight years because you have done amazingly well. And it makes me so thankful to know that in a church our size that doesn't necessarily explode with physical and and numerical growth, and yet all the things that God has called us to do as a church, we are trying to and faithfully doing. Matter of fact, James Boyce calls this the every member ministry. The every every member ministry. It means that ministers in the church are, he says, to prepare the people in the pews to do the work of the ministry. That is, the clergy are to teach the laity, and the laity are to do the work serving each other and the world. But he goes on to say, unfortunately, many churches have it completely turned around. It's said that today the churches are more, in, more than anything else, they resemble a football game played in a large stadium where there's 80,000 spectators who badly need some exercise and 22 men on the, on the field who badly need some rest. That's what the church of, of America looks like today. And again, I'm thankful that you stand in opposition to that truth. And so here we are, as I started my sermon today, focusing on the fact that we as a community may look different, we have different opinions, we come from different backgrounds. God has yet unified us in Christ, saving us. We have died with Him in death and been raised to newness of life, and we are called to work together for a common purpose and goal of the glorification of His name, no matter how different we might be. Which leads me to, finally, the totality of the work. If you go all the way down to the end of chapter 3, you really see no finished product. Because really, chapter 3, and chapter 4, and chapter 5, and all the way through the middle of chapter 6, is the process of rebuilding. Chapter 3 is a descriptive process. 
Chapter 4 and chapter 5, we begin to see some of the problems that arrive during the building process. So that in its completion, in chapter 6, we see the wall finished 52 days later. And notice the totality of the work and what is accomplished. That in verse 16, when all the enemies heard of it, all the nations around were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. God's name was glorified. That's what it means for us to accomplish God's purposes in their totality. That starts with an understanding of Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished. He is the one that leads the way in the totality of ministry. In the completion of ministerial work, He came and was faithful until the end to complete all that was necessary for our salvation. Therefore, the Jews of, of Nehemiah's day are not our example. Jesus is our example of being faithful until the end. Completing the work, finishing the task, providing the redemption that is necessary so that we might not only be empowered and saved, but we might see the example of being faithful to do what He's called us to do, knowing that He will help us complete it. So we work together as a church, looking forward to another year of our existence, thankful for what God has done in, in the past, and hopeful for what He will do in the future, allowing, in allowing us to accomplish great things for His name. And, my, and I am calling all of us today to commit to faithfulness in that work. If I could bring all of the members up here today and say, if you would just once again renew your commitment to Redemption Community Church and the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, I am committed once again this day and the days forward as long as God allows me here to do what He's called me to do here in this uh, fellowship of believers. Because I trust His providence and I, and I accept the responsibility to work according to the purposes that he set before me. And so we as a church move forward. We're like a herd of elephants traveling across the plain. All walk, walking together, different sizes. Some of us are hairier than others. We're, we're, we're walking and, and we're, we're traveling to a, the same destination. We're, we're not wandering off uh, on our own. We're, we're sticking together as a group. We, we, when we acknowledge danger, we, 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 we do what elephants do. We surround the weak in the middle and we build a perimeter on the outside, making sure that our, our brothers and sisters in Christ are not uh, taken up by wolves and taken up by lions, knowing that they're protected. And again, we're, we're keeping the goal in mind for elephants a lot of times. They're just traveling where they need to travel to get water in Africa. We're traveling where there's this, this, this understanding of faithfulness to God's mission and His purposes for us. Gospel expansion, kingdom growth. This is our call as, as a church, as a community. Doing these things together until we reach our destination. Until we accomplish the goals God has for us.
And folks, if Jesus Christ can raise from the dead, if he is, isn't so empowered to raise himself and yet be raised, defeating sin and death, then guess what? He can accomplish miraculous things through us. We have no doubt about that. Oh, well, we're not big enough. We don't have our own building. We don't have this great budget. Oh, really? Is that how God works? No. God works by taking things that are weak and small and meaningless so that his name is glorified. And that's what we have to trust. So that Christ would be glorified and his name would be known, even being used in a small assembly of his people like us. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this community of faith, God. That you have so knitted us and joined us together so that we might love each other because Christ has loved us. Father, in the as an elder of this church, I, I've been able to see from a bird's eye view the things that you have done, and, and I'm thankful. And I'm amazed and shocked and marveled by the fact that you have chosen to bring us together in love, showing us your faithfulness and your goodness, calling us to this great mission and responsibility so that we might just be beacons of of light to this dark and dying world. And so, Father, as a, as a shepherd and as a pastor of these people, I, I so desperately pray that we would be united. That in the end of this year and the years to come, that we would not allow disagreements to be divisions and divisions to be separation and separation to be destruction. That we would stand firm upon what God has called his church to be and to do, knowing that that message never changes, and that we would stand firm and be committed to those things, God. Because that is how you are glorified. And that we would surround each other and love each other and support each other as we move toward that common goal of the glory of Christ. And so we thank you for teaching us these things through the people of, of Jerusalem in the days of Nehemiah. And we pray these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Let's stand together. Mm-hmm.